I've got three things I need to do uh, before I uh, get done today, uh, so I have alliterated all three things. First of all, I need to make a special announcement. Uh, I need to uh, also um, give you a, a sober reminder, and then I need to preach a sermon. So I've got three things I need to do. They're all alliterated. So let's go with the special announcement. As you know, as has already been mentioned, today is the uh, last day of exclusively online worship here at Blue Valley Baptist Church, and we're excited uh, to get back together. We are as ready as we can be until people show up. You know, it's a little like uh, Mike Tyson uh, back in his glory days said everybody had a plan to beat him until they got hit, and uh, we have a plan for opening up. And we'll see how it works next week, and maybe have to change it uh, Monday morning, uh, June the 8th. But we're ready for that. A couple of things, though. First of all, um, we are in real need of volunteers for child care at the Antioch campus. Pastor Jonathan already mentioned that to us, but I can't stress it enough. If we don't get more volunteers for child care at the Antioch campus, based on people who said, I am coming, we will not be able to offer child care as extensively uh, during the month of June as what uh, we, we really want to be able to do. And so if you can help on any Sunday during the month of June, you see the link there uh, on the screen go there. I give you permission right now to go there and sign up um, because that, that's going to have to happen. Because we are still short of child care help, we have delayed the opening of the portal to register for child care until Tuesday evening. So it'll open up, it'll close on Friday evening. So we have a, a little window of time there where you'll be able to register for child care, birth through five years old. Um, they were set up on the, on the Ridgeview campus, we believe, but we need extra help at the Antioch campus, and we're going to need some volunteers to supplement that. So uh, that's the child care thing. Uh, the kind of more special announcement thing I need to do is to talk to you about um, uh, two, two groups of people that we don't need to be here uh, next Sunday, and then one group of people that we, we strongly encourage you to consider whether or not it's wise for you to be here. There, here, here are the two groups that we don't need to be here. Group number one, if you're sick, if you don't feel well, if you're running a fever, if you're feeling a little out of sorts, you stay home. We are offering worship online at 9.30 and 11 from the Antioch campus. You can fold that in with virtual Sunday school, uh, whatever schedule works uh, for you. But if you don't feel well, um, stay home. Second group of people we need to stay home are, are the activists. And here's what I mean by that. If you're planning on coming here next week to be the social distance police, where you can shake your finger at everyone who's not with uh, maintaining six feet or shake your finger at everyone uh, that's not wearing a mask, we don't need you to come. Uh, on the flip side of that, if you're someone who is going to ignore all social distancing protocols and choose willingly not to wear a mask because you're wanting to prove a, a cultural or political point, we need you to stay home too. Here's why. Both groups of people don't have their eyes on Jesus. And we need to have, as we get together, our eyes on Jesus, and we need to be showing grace and mercy to one another. So if you're, if you're an activist, if you're coming to prove a point or to police everybody, just stay home till you can get your heart focused on Jesus and then come together. Now, the group of people that we need to talk to that we strongly encourage you to exercise wisdom in coming would be anybody in a high-risk group. 
We're going to do our very best to maintain a safe environment on both of our campuses, but there's no guarantee that we won't have someone here who might not be infected and not know it. And so, if you're in one of those high-risk categories, we really strongly encourage you to stay home. You're big boys and big girls. You can decide to do what you want to do. It is your life to exercise in that regard. But we want you to know, we get the need for some people maybe to stay home for a while, and we'll continue to supplement what we're doing, okay? All right, so that's the special announcement stuff. Let me, uh, let me talk to you in, uh, about a, a sober uh, thing right now. Um, as Jonathan mentioned, uh, our country right now is being absolutely torn apart. It's not being torn apart because of something that happened earlier this week. It's being torn apart because of things that have been going on for a very, very long time. And it's easy for us as a church, as the church in America, to look um, at the outside and say it's all right there. But I want us to stop to consider for a minute that society is a reflection of the effectiveness of the church. And maybe, maybe, maybe we need to stop and think about what we're doing. Here's my biggest frustration as a pastor. I love being a pastor. I love being your pastor. Here's my biggest frustration being a pastor. My biggest frustration, concern in being a pastor is how many of us allow our brains to be used rent-free by politicians, political parties, and media. Now, folks, that happens on both sides of the spectrum. It really does. We let those groups of people do our thinking for us. It happens on both sides of the political spectrum. But I don't have to deal very much at Blue Valley with those who are influenced by the left. I have to, I have to, I have to deal with those who are more influenced from the right side of that political spectrum. And my concern with it in allowing this to continue to happen in our brains is that I have started to notice over the years that if biblical teaching violates biblical orthodoxy or political orthodoxy, we will reject biblical teaching to preserve political orthodoxy. You say, well, give me an example. I'll give you an example. Racial reconciliation. There has been a big discussion in the Southern Baptist Convention, of which our church is a part for uh, the last probably 10 years or so, seven for sure, about the need for the gospel to bring us all together and for us to be um, uh, reconciled across racial divides with one another because that's what heaven is going to be like. And there's this man that I've uh, had a working relationship with, we're friendly but not friends, named Russell Moore. And Russell Moore has been one of the ones who has championed racial reconciliation within the Southern Baptist Convention. But in 2016, Russell Moore was essentially patient zero in the Never Trump movement. And he began to get a lot of political blowback on that. And now he is at a point, and people within our convention are at a point, where they are rejecting the call for racial reconciliation because it violates what they perceive to be a slight against them politically. And what has wound up happening is that we are now dismissing racial reconciliation as, and this is the word that is used over and over again, cultural Marxism. Look, racial reconciliation is low-hanging fruit for a Christian. The fact that our races should be reconciled to one another should be the easiest thing in the world to deal with. 
I mean, it should be one of those things I love. I love Christmas, I love Easter, I love Amazing Grace, and I'm all for racial reconciliation. But right now, it's dismissed because of the politics that are perceived behind it, rather than what the Bible actually says about the need for the races to be brought together as one under the banner of Christ. And so what I have to do as a pastor and what our elders have to do as we try to shepherd you is figure out how do we penetrate all of that so that people can stop and think about the merits of the biblical argument that we are reconciled together, especially at a time when we are experiencing so much racial strife in our country. And I do a lot of my thinking while I'm out running. And it occurred to me that in order for us to really have our thinking adjusted to at least start to see it more biblically than along our political lines of division, maybe we need to personalize it. Here's something that happened 10 years ago or so. Um, Immigration reform was a big, big deal uh, politically in our country at the time, and um, everybody had their opinions and were voicing them. I had my opinions. I was voicing them. And in the midst of all of that, we had a man in our church who was found out news to all of us, to have been here illegally for a very long time. And suddenly, immigration didn't become a thing, and immigrants weren't a group of people. It all centered on this one man and his family. And we watched what happened as that man went through a process that ultimately required him to be deported. I had a man come to me right here. I can, I can see it in my eye. We, we were standing right there. Come to me and say, you know what? Um, I had these different thoughts based on what I was reading in the news about immigrants and immigration. But seeing what happened to him started to change my mind. And I thought, how do we personalize? How do we personalize what's going on in, in, in our country at Blue Valley? I can't change the world, but how can I lead Blue Valley to personalize what's going on in our country right now? And so Over the last 36 hours, with the elders' approval, we have begun to put together an opportunity that will be next week. There are details to come, but an opportunity that will take place next week where I will have a conversation with a a small group of African-American men from our congregation. It will be live-streamed from the Antioch campus. We won't have anybody in here, but it will be live-streamed from the Antioch campus. And these are, these are men who have been at Blue Valley. At the, the newest one has been here six years. Uh, some of them have been here longer than I have been. These are men that you know, men that you love. And I'm going to ask these men, have no idea what they're going to say, but I'm going to ask them four questions. Number one, what's it like to be black in America? Number two, what's it like to be black at Blue Valley Baptist Church? Number three, what can our church do to come alongside your community and you and your family and support you? And number four, how can you help us address any racial insensitivities we may have and not be aware of? Every one of these men, unprompted, told me they were hurting. Hurting. Because of of what they have seen take place, not just this week, but over time. They're hurting. We need to know that as a church family. And so we're going to give them a platform to talk. The only time you'll hear my voice is in asking the questions or only in asking questions to ask them to clarify. I won't, won't say anything else. It is, it is they are driving the content. The, we just are going to listen. And maybe if we just listen and we see people as, as people that we worship with and that we love, 
maybe, maybe we can stop being stupid on social media and, and unfeeling in the things that we say and begin to help one another as the body of Christ, begin to act like the beautiful, diverse body of Christ that will exist for eternity. So, that's what's, that's what's to come. Look for details about that next week. Now, let's pray. Jonathan's already led us in prayer, but let's pray right now for what's going on specifically in our country and for our own hearts to, to, to think as God would think and to feel as God would feel about what's going on. Join me, please. Father, the, the nation's coming apart at the seams, it appears. And it would be very easy to just get angry, but what does that fix? Obviously, everybody's angry. It would be easy to ignore it and to pretend that none of it's going on. It would be easy, Father, for us to absolve ourselves immediately of any culpability in any of this without ever really thoughtfully coming before you and saying, God, am I part of this problem in my insensitivities, in the rage culture that I perpetuate through my social media usage? Am I part of this? Father, we as the church need to look inward at, at, what, at what we're doing in our country and what we may be doing to brothers and sisters of Christ of color in our own midst. We need to deal with these things. And I pray, God, that you will help us do that. But God, I pray right now for Minneapolis. Father, I have a personal investment there. I have a daughter and a son-in-law who are living there. Their grocery store, Father, is boarded up right now because of what's transpiring in their cities. They can smell smoke when they go outside. They've been told to stay inside. Roads have been closed, Father, because a city is exploding with rage. And rather than dismiss that as some faraway thing, Father, I, I pray that, that we as the church will be reconcilers in the midst of it. I thank you for the churches in the Twin Cities that are cleaning up looted and rioted areas right now, being the hands and feet of Jesus. I thank you for the churches in the Twin Cities that are having hard conversations in their own midst about, about, about reconciling uh, among the races. Father, I pray that you will, you will show your sovereignty and your goodness over the Twin Cities and over America as these things have, have branched out. Father, I, I, I want to thank you for the honorable men and women, hundreds of thousands of them in law enforcement, who leave their homes every day and put their lives at risk because they want to do the right thing. And Father, I would imagine many of them are hurting as well too because of some bad actors who have colored their entire profession negatively. I pray, Father, for those men and women in law enforcement and first responders at Blue Valley. I pray, Father, that they will feel our love and support, just like those who are people of color at Blue Valley will feel our love and support for them. And I pray, Father, that we will come out of this humbled at the, at the changes that, that we need to, 
make in our own lives, more sensitive, Father, to the things we say so that your name can be made great and your glory can be made known. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that. Be looking for more details on that coming in the next few weeks. Now, having done a special announcement and had a time of uh, sober reflection together, we are going to go uh, to our message. Um, if you would please find 1 John in your copy of God's Word. Pastor Darren brought us back into that book well last week, and we are here today to uh, uh, kind of continue on in our journey through that wonderful book. And in the coming weeks, I will tell you, um, it's amazing to me how the content is so suitable for what we are going through as a country right now. But today, something I think is probably pretty relevant for a lot of people. For a good part of my teenage and college years, I did not feel saved. I really didn't. Frankly, I lived mostly terrified that I hadn't really given my life to Christ, and I never really could say with conviction that I was absolutely certain that I was a follower of Jesus. I knew that I wanted to be. I desperately knew I wanted to absolutely be for certain that I was a follower of Jesus, but I didn't know for certain at all. So why the lack of confidence when I was a teenager? Well, it was a toxic mixture of being prone to anxiety at that age and bad theology topped off with a belief that how I felt about my spiritual life was the most important thing. I believed that my feelings were the arbiter of what was most true about me, and I never really stopped long enough from worrying to consider that maybe what I felt at any given moment about anything at all wasn't necessarily a gold standard of what was really true. I eventually got it sorted out, and I haven't struggled with it since. But when I became a pastor, I discovered that I wasn't alone in this experience. In fact, the first church that I served as pastor was rife with this uncertainty. A good many people in that Tennessee church I pastored based everything about their entire spiritual life on how they felt at any given moment. A sermon was good if it made them feel good or, for some warped reason, if it made them feel bad. I mean, I had many guys come up to me and say, boy, pastor, that sermon took me to the woodshed. I really liked it. I mean, what's that all about? I don't know. But a worship service was good if it made them cry or made them happy. And my confidence in my relationship with Christ was certain if I felt like it was. And it was easy to make people feel like their relationship with Christ wasn't certain. An evangelist would come through one spring and a long-standing church member would get saved. And then the next year, another evangelist would come through, come through. That same church member would get saved again because they didn't feel like they were anymore. They'd lost it in a year. This is not a new experience. Pastors have had to help people wrestle with a lack of confidence in their salvation and doubts about that since the beginning. In fact, it's one of the key things that John has been addressing in this letter that we're studying right now, perhaps nowhere more clearly than in our passage today. I encouraged you earlier to find 1 John. We'll be in chapter 3, verse 19 and following. Let's, let's pay attention closely as God's Word is read this morning, beginning in verse 19 of 1 John 3. By this... 
we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what He pleases. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abide in God and God in Him, and by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Now, if I could sum up in John's Word uh, that He gave us in, in these several verses in one sentence, it would be this, confidence isn't a feeling. Confidence isn't a feeling. In fact, if you were tracking with John's words at all and what we just read, you can pretty plainly see that he's trying to help people see that how you feel about your faith can actually mislead you. Confidence is a fe- isn't a feeling. So what is it? John shows us three things. First, confidence isn't a feeling, it's a confirmation. Confidence isn't a feeling, it's a confirmation. Let me show you what I mean. Let's go back through verses 19 and 20 slowly. Verse 19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. So we need to ask ourselves a question about verse 19, what is the this? And pretty clearly the this in verse 19 is that which reassures our heart and it is actually pointing back to what Pastor Darren preached last week, verses 11 through 18, verses which teach that one of the key characteristics of someone who is genuinely in the faith is a manifestation of self-giving, sacrificial love for others. So when John speaks in verse 19, he's saying that the confirmation of the truth in our lives is the presence in our lives of sacrificial love for others. But there's a more subtle nuance to it that we must not miss, and it's in verse 20, where he says, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. This is important. The the words, our hearts condemn us, are speaking to us on a deeper level than mere doubt. It's actually talking about the experience of knowing the right thing to do, but trying to justify not doing it ourselves. If we are truly in the faith, if we have those moments when we are trying to absolve ourselves of doing the right thing, that that conviction that we feel, that condemnation, to borrow John's words, that we feel from God lets us know that we are actually in the faith. So there are two sides to the same coin at work here. On one hand, we can know that we are in the faith if we, in response to the love that we have been shown in Christ, sacrificially love others. On the other hand, we can know that we are in the faith when we refuse to love others sacrificially and we experience the conviction of God. So let's broaden this out and see the bigger picture here. Confidence isn't a feeling. Confidence is the confirmation of our faith born of our attitude toward sin, experienced either in our obedience or experienced in the conviction, the condemnation that we encounter when we are disobedient or considering 
being disobedient. Clearly, the specific example John has in mind here is the measure of our love for others. But there are obviously more aspects to our obedience than simply our love for one another. And John has spoken of them repeatedly in this book so far. The bottom line is that our attitude toward obedience is confirmation of the authenticity of our face. This is important to linger over for a moment. Because I've found that sometimes confidence can be misplaced. Talk to any random person on the street who believes in God in the afterlife, and most of them will tell you that they feel pretty good about their chances. But if you were to examine their lives, you might not find any evidence that their lives are shaped by a commitment to obedience to Christ. They may be moral people, they may be living according to socially acceptable moral codes, but that doesn't mean the same thing as being shaped by Christ in the commitment that they have to living a certain way. Or these people may be completely immoral, people who live for themselves in pleasure, and they still feel good about their chances with the afterlife. They feel confident before God, but they have no reason to be. Because the confirmation of faith in God isn't a feeling. Faith is confirmed by an attitude towards sin and its effect on our relationship with Christ. Confidence isn't a feeling. It's a confirmation born of our attitude towards sin and pleasing God. Next, confidence isn't a feeling. It's a connection. Look at verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, We have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. The really easy thing to do here would be to latch on to the whatever we ask, we receive bit, right? I mean, that would be a good thing to to think about if that's true, and it's not wrong to latch on to it. It really isn't. It's just premature, probably, in our consideration of what these verses are teaching. Because the most important thing happening in these verses is the description of the kind of relationship we have with God when we are living in a confidence that is born of obedience as confirmation. Let me use a a lighthearted example to illustrate a more profound point. There's a lot of chatter in our world right now about what is jokingly called the quarantine 15. Now, if you're like me, being home has caused every meal or almost every meal to be a weekend version of Saturday night dining. In my house, our biggest meal of the week, our most enjoyable meal of the week is Saturday night. But being home, you can kind of cook through the afternoon while you're working. And the result is we've eaten like it's Saturday night several nights weekly during the quarantine. Now, how do I stay accountable to my weight? I stay accountable to the weight my weight by the scales in the bathroom. They are the means by which I'm encouraged if I'm managing my diet well and by which I'm convicted if I'm not managing my diet well. And I'm going to be honest, the scales and I don't have the connection that we used to have. It's not the scales' fault, though. It's mine. The same thing occurs When our confidence in our relationship to God sags, when our obedience is lacking or non-existence, we avoid Him. We 
as a result, uh, have a connection that would normally give us confidence in our relationship with God, begin to ebb or go missing. And this is the deeper point that John is making in these verses. John is saying that when we have confidence born of confirmation, confirmation of uh, being the evidence of our obedience and the conviction that we have of sin in our lives, we have a boldness in our relationship with God. His presence is real. We are connected to Him, and this gives us a confidence to go to Him boldly in prayer. So does this confidence-building connection really mean that we can ask whatever we ask for? Yes, it does. It does. The language is all-inclusive and open-ended, but you must remember the context in which the request is made. It's being made, as John is teaching it here, by someone who is, according to verse 22, striving to keep God's commandments and to do whatever pleases him. And later in 1 John 5.14, it is being asked by someone who is asking according to God's will. So the request isn't one that directs God to do for us something as much as it is asking God what he wants from us. I've heard earlier this week that most of our prayers are spice girl prayers. If you remember them from the, uh, the 90s, uh, we go to God and say, let me tell you what I want, what I really, really want. And then we expect God to say back, so tell me what you want, what I really, really want. That's, that's how we pray. But the person who, who has confidence in their relationship with God is not directing God to do anything in their prayers. They're saying, God, make me desire what you desire. And in doing so, we have that connection strengthened, which gives us confidence in our faith. Finally, conviction, confidence isn't a feeling it's a conviction. Confidence isn't a feeling. It's a conviction. Look at verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Verse 23 is essentially a summary of this entire section of John. And it tells us that ultimately the command of God is a deep-seated belief that Jesus alone saves and is manifested in his love shining through our lives to others. Someone has summed it up this way. You can't believe without loving, and you can't love without believing. And John says that when we do that, look at verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us and by the Spirit whom he has given us. So what is John telling us? He's telling us that confidence can only be ours if we have the conviction that Jesus is mankind's only hope for salvation, our only hope for salvation personally, and that this upends our lives so completely that we make our lives vehicles for God's will and God's love in the world. Now, there's certainly a lot to this. But the end of the matter is this, the Christian life is the bedrock conviction that Jesus is our only hope and that our lives are meant to be conduits of his life and love into the life of others. Confidence isn't a feeling. 
Confidence isn't a feeling. Confidence, according to what John has shared with us, is first of all, confirmation born of our attitude towards sin. Then it is a connection that that we feel when we are pursuing in a, in a pure and a holy way God. And then finally, it is a conviction that Jesus is the only way. And when I remember those things, doubt can disappear. And I'm not hostage to feelings anymore. Instead, I'm captivated by the one who gives me the confidence I need to know that he holds my life. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, if you don't have that confidence, if you're wrestling with whether or not you're authentically and genuinely saved, let me say to you, you can email us at justask at bluevalleybaptist.org and we'll be happy to talk with you about what it means to surrender your life to Christ or to find the confidence that you need to be certain that Jesus has indeed saved you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for our time. A lot had to be shared, and it felt like, Father, perhaps that we were taking a lot of right turns through all of this. But God, I pray that your word has shown through. I pray, Father, that people who are wrestling with doubts uh, will, will have those doubts um, assuaged by the, by the truth of your word. And then, Father, if there are people out there who who doubt because they should be, because they don't know you. I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit is drawing them to yourself right now in salvation. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.